This podcast is sponsored by Traction Capital Partners, a private investment firm based out of Tacoma, Washington. Traction Capital focuses on acquiring businesses based in the Pacific Northwest that have between $1 and $5 million in earnings. For more information, please visit TractionCP.com. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run companies. For more information, visit alexbridgman.com. My guest on this episode is Michael Girdley, who is chairman and head of strategy of Dura Software, a holding company that acquires small software companies based in San Antonio. Michael is also a co-founder of Geekdom Fund, a small venture firm, and a co-founder of CodeUp, a coding bootcamp in San Antonio. I've had guests from software on the show before, but this episode is particularly good and I learned a ton. I've wanted to learn more about investing in software and Michael provided a fantastic overview of the space and Dura and their strategy. If you want to invest in software companies, this is an episode you'll enjoy and get a lot of value from. So I'm 45 years old now, so uh, squarely in the, uh, the middle of my life. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a good age. I like it. I liked my thirties. I think I like my forties better. Uh, the twenties were definitely inferior to all those things put together. Um, you know, long, long story about, you know, how I got to where I am today professionally. Um, you know, I grew up here in, in San Antonio. I was always a computer kid. Um, did that from, from the time I was just a, a little, yeah, I think nine years old was when we got my first computer. Uh, for our family and my parents paid three grand for an Apple IIe, which is probably 10 or $11,000 in, in, you know, in 2019 dollars. Um, and was always interested in them and always came back to that. They were always easy. They were always fun. Um, and you know, that led me to, to take a lot of computer classes in, in high school. Um, when I was in high school, actually, I went to a great high school here in town. We were doing everything on, uh, IBM PCs, um, writing code on those. And, you know, you could do all kinds of crazy stuff back then in terms of erasing your code or formatting your disks and that sort of thing. And so stuck with that. And, and I decided I wanted to get as far away from San Antonio as possible at the time. And, uh, was very methodical about the type of college I wanted to go to. I wanted to go to a small school far away from San Antonio with a good swimming program. Uh, possibly a Greek scene, and I applied to like 30 colleges that that fit that, and ended up going to a college in Pennsylvania that's a very good engineering school uh, called Lafayette, and um, graduated in four years, swam for four years, it was great, and then decided, well, if I want to do something, I should go get into the computer business and the software business, and so you know that really gravitated me to move out to Silicon Valley. And, you know, at the time, all my friends were going to get consulting jobs at Anderson Consulting or PwC or whatever. And I just I had no interest whatsoever. So um, ended up out in San Francisco, slept on friends, couches, kind of typical story of the kid moved to the big city, uh, worked in jobs there, found out very quickly. I didn't want to be an engineer anymore, that I liked people and marketing much more than uh, than, you know, sitting in front of a computer all day. And then did that for about five years until the dot-com crash happened. Uh, met a lady along the way who has since become my lovely spouse. Uh, and that's when, you know, an inflection point happened in life that brought us back to Texas. Um, my father, who was getting up in age at the time, decided he didn't want to run the family business anymore and asked me to come back um, and take it over. 
you know, as a, I guess at the time, a 26, 27 year old young man. And uh, so I did that. We moved to San Antonio, got out of the Bay Area, which a lot of people do. And uh, I ran that business, which is a fireworks distributing and retailing business for uh, almost a decade. Learned how to be a CEO, learned all the good stuff and bad stuff to do, mostly through trial and error. And then, you know, now I'm in the third phase of my career where um, I'm spending more time working on businesses than in them. Um, you know, I enjoy the process of working with other CEOs, of working with the people that work for me and with me um, much more than I want to be a CEO uh, of a company at this point. Um, you know, I, I kind of think about it as supporting them from from behind, if that makes sense. Like, I don't need to be in the hot seat. Um, I feel like I can add a lot more value delivering insights, coaching, and assistance to the folks that are running the businesses. Since you have the operational experience, but maybe not the, the deal and transaction background, how has it been transitioning into more of having that role in your life versus beforehand? I've always been somebody that likes to think about business um, much more than somebody that likes to actually do the business, if that makes sense. Like, I'm, I'm actually not very operationally strong. Um, you know, I'm, I'm relatively weak at multitasking. Uh, if I do get involved in multiple things, I actually have to, um, I actually have to have systems to be able to do that. And I, I watch peers or CEOs that I work with who can keep 30 balls in the air at once. And I, I just can't, I'm not very good at that. I can focus on one, two, maybe three things and I can do those really well. Um, so I'm kind of a serial monotasker in that way. So, you know, I think the, the lesson that I learned there was that, you know, I would be much more successful if I could find people whose superpower was operational things and, and keeping things going and grinding it out because um, I'm too attracted to shiny objects. I'm too much of a monotasker. It's just it's just not who I am. So that's always caused me to gravitate towards this thinking about business rather than doing it, if that makes sense. Um, and I think, you know, I think in terms of Am I happy in my career now? Like I totally am, right? If you gave me an operational role, I would not be a happy camper right now. Are there a few stories or examples where you struggle as an operator? Oh yeah. Well, like the thing that was really eye-opening to me, and like if you're a weak operator, this will happen to you. You'll go on vacation for like three weeks and you come back and you're like, wait a second. Everything ran better than when I was here. Like there weren't distractions. I wasn't like bringing the, the, the Eureka moment idea of the day uh, and dragging the whole staff one direction or another and going through kind of this whipsaw thing. So I think, you know, I, I can remember going on vacations and coming back and being like, I think the universe is trying to tell me something, right? When it was like, oh, these people did better with the business seeing less of me than more of me. Um, and that pattern has continued on. Um, you know, I did have one of the companies that I'm uh, an owner and, and control with my partners. Um, you know, they, they asked me very nicely, hey, would you not come around so much? And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, no problem. You're, if you're asking somebody to do less work, I'm your guy. Um, but, you know, you know, literally that it was just that kind of reality, you know, facing reality about where I'm good and where I'm not good. Um, I think is kind of the biggest evolution I've gone through over the past past decade. So has that influenced how you work with your portfolio companies with Dura then? You know, the way Dura is, is organized uh, is that 
you know, we logically treat them as companies, but we all sit together. We're all in the same, we're all in the same space. And the CEOs, you know, they're much more integrated than, say, a typical, you know, hold, hold, hold co model or even like a very distributed model would be, um, you know, our CEOs running these businesses can look across the office and see the other CEOs. Um, and they have meetings, they have problem solving sessions. That's all by design. And so, you know, what that does is it gives us an opportunity to have, you know, have them feel like they're ultimately responsible for what they're doing, but they have partners in terms of me and Paul and the other headquarters staff, you know, in their corner helping them out. And I think secondarily, so first of all, it does that. Secondarily, I think it gives us a lot of empathy uh, about how hard, you know, being a person that owns a P&L is. I mean, it's, it is, it is not an easy job to do. And so, you know, I, you know, I've, having been there, I feel a lot of empathy for these folks that are dealing with, you know, what are existential challenges, you know, on a regular basis. And so anyway, I think those are the two things. One is, you know, treating them like, like a peer, treating them like they're essential to what's going on. And then secondarily having a lot of empathy for, for their plight and what they're going through. It's, it's not easy. Yeah, I've heard it can be a bit of a lonely job at times. How has having uh, a few companies that they can go to in your, you know, underneath the Dura umbrella to just bounce ideas and questions off of them and just having like a small community of operators that helps ease some of that stress of the job? Yeah, so the cool thing is we are very... Um, we're very mindful of the profile of person we want to have uh, run one of our you know business units, run one of the, the companies. Um, we're looking for a person who is mid-career, has managed people, and is just kind of on the cusp of being ready to be in the hot seat, but nobody has really given them a chance to be a CEO yet. And, and what that means is typically we'll be bringing in somebody who has a very um, – a very high level of depth in one or two functional areas, but hasn't been exposed to the rest of it. So as an example, you know, uh, one of the candidates might be, have worked in, um, you know, operations and then secondarily in support for all of their career and risen up the ranks to a middle management or an executive level role there, right? Um, but they haven't been exposed to things like how does real estate work? How do leases work? How does finance and accounting work? How does revenue recognition or sales work? So, you know, really our role there is to bring in these people who are very deep in their specific functional areas of the business and then give them an opportunity to learn all of those other areas to become a, a well-rounded CEO. Now, the cool thing about that model is sometimes you're bringing somebody who's coming from a sales background? Are you bringing somebody who's coming from a marketing background? Are you bringing somebody who's coming from an engineering background? And when you start to, to build up, in our case, we have three CEOs on the, the team right now. They each have complementary and different strengths to where they can help each other. So if one CEO is having trouble with sales, well, it just happens one of the other CEOs comes to us from a sales background. So he can go in really deep and help solve that individual problem. And we do that actually by design. They have, um, and I don't go to these meetings intentionally, uh, but we do have uh, regular meetings where they get in and they deal with peer-to-peer uh, -peer helping each other solve the biggest business issues um, that they're, they're facing. So there's economies of scale, efficiencies of scale that we see um, by running it with that model. 
Right. So then after acquiring these companies and bringing them underneath Dura, what sorts of things can you offer the CEOs or shared services and support after acquisition? So, you know, we deploy our own people um, to run these businesses. Quarter of our model is that the people who are running them now um, need to move on to their next thing. We'll have fundamental ideas about how we want to run the business that are sometimes different than what the sellers or founders of that business um, have done. So, you know, we really deploy a handful of core principles and tools into each one of these uh, companies. Um, so number one is we've defined a standardized playbook that we ask everybody to use um, in order to run the business. And what that, that does is gives us a common language for everything around how hiring works, how, you know, vision, planning, strategy, marketing. Like we have a playbook um, that we have laid out and said, this is how we're going to do hiring. This is how we're going to do all these aspects of our business. Um, so that's fundamentally number one. And we have to do that in order to make sure the businesses are monitorable by us. And also so um, we know they're not worrying about uh, – we want them to be worrying about really important stuff, like how do I delight my customers and not like, you know, how do I run, you know, a visioneering session at my offsite. So that's kind of um, that's kind of element number one that we deploy in these companies. Um, number two is we have economies of scale around bringing them into a larger umbrella. So we become a single purchaser of things like um, PEO, healthcare, uh, employee benefits, real estate, uh, and that sort of thing. And, and we do that as a as a company, and we get we get scale that you normally wouldn't have uh, for an individual, you know, small two to $5 million a year software company. And then the third thing we do is we centralize services where there's no, you know, strategic advantage to having them distributed. So finance, HR, facilities, um, all of that stuff is, is centralized and we have a, a division underneath the CFO of the company who runs all those things. So those are kind of the three major tenants of that stuff. And then there's a bunch of minor stuff that we do as well to, you know, make things more efficient and optimize them and get benefit from having them be under a bigger umbrella. In, in our first phone call, you talked about how, uh, software is becoming a popular, um, place for investors to invest in companies, but that more people are generally talking about it than actually doing it. Where do you see opportunity within acquiring software companies? It seems like a place that has higher than average multiples for other types of businesses. Where are you finding opportunity? Yeah, well, I think uh, where we play and, and is in two specific uh, portions of the of the market. Um, you know, as we as we go out and we look at the market for kind of the two to five million dollar year software companies, um, we think there are four four kind of buckets. Um, and we're getting ready. Actually, we're we're putting together a, a white paper we're going to have on our Dora website in the next couple of weeks um, that kind of details these and where they trade in terms of multiples and stuff like that. And so really the four buckets are at the top end, you have, you have VC businesses. So those are the ones that are, you know, rocket ships are growing hundred percent year over year. They're huge markets. VCs pay huge multiples for those eight, nine, 10, 20 times, uh, 20 times revenue, uh, for sure. So we don't play in that space. Um, there's a second category, which is, um, you know, what we just kind of describe as good businesses. Um, so typically these are high margin, slow growth, meaning 15 to 20 percent year over year growth, uh, nice niche software businesses, typically in, in small uh, total addressable market and stuff like that. Um, 
those things are already pretty much fixed. They're running really well. Um, the kind of surgery that we want to do to help a company really get on the right track uh, has already been done. So we don't play in that space either. Then there's the two last categories where where we tend to play and where we see opportunity and our our acquisitions to date um, fit in those buckets. And then the next one is um, one that we would describe as slightly underperforming. And uh, we're still working on naming that because we don't want to insult people. But typically it means like it's a relatively small market. It's a niche, a niche play. It fits the revenue characteristics. But it doesn't, um, it's got some stuff that needs to be fixed on it, whether that's accounting needs to be done better, there is no sales model, all those kind of things are things that we want to go in and, and figure out for that kind of company. And usually they're kind of breaking even, they're growing maybe a little bit or they're flat. Um, and that's where we can go in and, and we deploy our operational model and expertise and help there. So that's, that's one bucket where we play. And then there's at the far end of the spectrum, the opposite of VC is um, a more distressed companies. So ones that, you know, have some sort of challenge, whether they're, you know, overstaffed or whatnot, where they're losing money and they, they need to sell uh, and need some changes to really work. So, you know, we play in those two buckets. Um, and I think what you're seeing now uh, amongst those four categories, so you have VC, you know, good businesses, uh, slightly underperforming and distressed. What you're seeing in the market these days is the all of the different um, software lenders that have come out means that the a lot of the distressed companies or companies that should be distressed are really they've gotten a um, they've gotten a reprieve because they've gotten this debt that has allowed them to inch along for longer than maybe they should have. So I do think we're, you know, coming to a point in the market where we're going to start to see more distressed market, more distressed companies as some of these debt financing options start to run out. So what are a few things that investors should be cautious of when looking to acquire software companies that are distinct and specific to software compared to other industries? Yeah, I mean, there's interestingly enough, the uh, the document that we're working on is actually going to show up on the website. We wrote a whole white paper on things that um, are things that are relatively specific, but also endemic to the software space in general. So, um, you know, I think category one, you see a ton of just basic business hygiene issues. Um, things like, have you been doing your financials correctly? Have you been filing your taxes? Um, as, a, as a funny example, um, we were close to um, acquiring a company and we were going through diligence and we discovered that um, they owed almost three times uh, in taxes what their annual revenue was. Um, and that's just state taxes. I, we haven't even looked at the federal ones yet. So, you know, there's a lot of fundamentals around that. Um, you know, in terms of software specific, you know, I think the thing that's that's relatively frustrating as a buyer is most sellers have a hard time really understanding how a buyer is going to make an investment or a purchase of the company work. Um, you know, there's there is this kind of weird um, just folk wisdom where people are like, hey, software companies are worth three times revenue or five times revenue. And, and I know why that happens. Um, it's because brokers, VCs, uh, bankers, debt people, they're all incentivized just to talk about how high multiples are and use the one thing that they've seen in TechCrunch to explain stuff. And, and I think the painful thing there is, you know, most sellers, especially if they're technical 
people who have built a business and are not that business savvy, they have a hard time putting their, their mind into understanding how a buyer is going to actually profit from their business at a reasonable level. Um, and so, you know, what causes those factors are, are all kinds of things that I think are, are really, you know, very interesting. Like, you know, what kind of sales model do you have, right? The, uh, if just as an example, if you have a direct sales model where real people have to sell the business, um, that is inherently riskier for a buyer than a self-service model. Right. So let's let's take two two businesses that both have four million dollars a year in revenue. One is self-service and one is uh, one is direct sales where you have staff selling it. Well, you know, worst case for you, if it's a self-service model, is you just turn off all selling, all paid advertising, all everything. You just turn it into an ATM machine. Right. You can definitely do that. So your downside is more limited in a self-service model, whereas it. If you get rid of all of the sales team and you don't invest in that for a direct sales model company, you end up with a business that starts shrinking very quickly and eventually reaches the point of no return to where they're, you know, it can't come back. So, you know, there's all kinds of factors around those types of things that people, you know, aren't, you know, just because they've, they have no experience and no exposure to it, they don't, they don't know. Um, and it, and it creates a lot of challenge because, Folks like us end up kind of being in the seller education business a lot of times like, OK, well, let me let me explain to you why this doesn't work or why your neighbor telling you that software companies, quote unquote, are trading for five times revenue um, isn't always true. Right. It's more complex than that in, in many different regards. So which of those like hygiene issues within the business are you willing to take on as a buyer and which are you when you see them in a business, you want no part of them? Yeah. So, I, you know, there's a good quote and I, I didn't I didn't. I didn't make it up, but I think it's really smart is, you know, these small stage businesses or our early stage investing, um, they are, uh, there's always red flags. It's just up to you to figure out which red flags are okay with you. Um, and given there's probably, there's probably a, a, a thousand different ways for a business to go wrong and, and three or four or five ways for it to go right. Um, you know, it, 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 it's hard, right? There's lots of ways for it to go wrong. Um, I mean, in terms of things that, you know, we will avoid, uh, you know, we have kind of a core checklist. We want to be a, a, um, by mission critical products. And the fundamental thesis there is, you know, if, if something's a nice to have product, it's the first thing to go, uh, in a recession. So we will avoid things like, employee engagement software or hiring software, right? The first thing that happens in a recession is nobody buys, nobody hires, therefore nobody needs hiring software. Um, we will avoid things that are, um, you know, have really challenging revenue models, right? You know, if, if per, per use revenue models are harder and less attractive than say a recurring revenue model where somebody pays you a subscription, um, other than that, you know, we evaluate each business that we're looking at, you know, individually and beyond kind of some core, the core checklist things around size, uh, geography, uh, mission criticality, uh, B2B versus B2C. We don't do B2C just because it's not interesting to us. We're direct sales B2B people. Um, beyond those checklists, we'll tend to look at almost everything. Gotcha. And then how do you find these software companies? Are you going through brokers primarily? Are there, um, do you have a direct outreach to owners um, strategy or plan or um, what, what are your main methods? Yeah, we do. We do everything. Um, you know, there's direct outreach. We've built a database of about 30,000 software companies. 
Uh, and so we run a, a, an outreach process around that. Um, we have a referral program, uh, which we just rolled out last month. We pay people $25,000 if they refer us a deal uh, that we do. Um, so that's actually been pretty successful. We get about one or two referrals a week from that. Um, we've gotten on an, an interface with most of the brokers in the industry. Um, I think we've got a pretty good reputation with those folks as well. Uh, and then we do a bit of everything else uh, in terms of just trying to be that, you know, the, the corp dev team here kind of describes themselves as an octopus, right? They're, they're using every outreach, uh, outreach method to try to find things. Um, you know, we also network to PE folks. We go to conferences, you know, generally just do everything that you do at a higher end M&A or PE shop. We're just doing that on a smaller scale uh, here for these uh, this micro end of the spectrum. So I'm kind of curious about the referral program then um, sounding like it's been fairly successful. Is this something that you've um, that you're asking just your close in network to refer or is this something that you've been a little more public and upfront with? Yeah, we're public about it. Um, so, uh, you know, we spend probably 20 bucks a day or so on Twitter ads. Uh, it's probably our most most popular tweet is uh, tell us about, you know, a business that, you know, uh, and email it to us. Um, you know, we're in the process of putting it up on the website. Um, we talk about it publicly. So, uh, yeah, we, we, we will pay referral fees all day long. We're happy to do that. How helpful has Twitter been for you? Just out of curiosity. Uh, Twitter is okay as a company. You know, I think, um, you know, where, where I think Twitter has helped a ton for us is, um, for me and my colleagues getting smarter because of Twitter. Um, I think Twitter offers perspectives and because of the nature of it, there's such a competition amongst everybody to produce the best content. And whether you're in VC Twitter or you're in financial Twitter or real estate Twitter, um, each of these places, you know, the, the beauty of Twitter is each of those places is optimized that the people who contribute the most and add the most value to the community and the discussion are the ones that get the most followers and therefore get the most connections and get the most respect. So for me, it's taken a while to kind of learn that. I'm not naturally good at social media and I'm, I'm still working on it. Um, but for me, my colleagues, like Twitter as a learning tool is a million times more powerful than conferences and it's you know it's up there right with reading books and blog posts about how to make yourself better um and you know i wouldn't i wouldn't i wouldn't get rid of it for the world obviously you with dura want to be around for many many years as a software acquirer what sorts of things are you doing today that um, you expect will not pay off for at least five years? Well, you know, I think there are a lot of fundamentals that we're starting to invest in. Um, you know, we talked about this playbook that we use in terms of operating the businesses, and that's a best of breed system of systems that we've we've created. Um, you can actually, it's what we use is actually totally uh, on my personal website. You know, we're not, we, we keep no secret about it. Uh, as to what those systems are, and it's constantly evolving. And I think deploying that, um, you know, is, is really huge. I, I think the second thing that we're doing that's really interesting is the next generation of people that will be able to run these software businesses, they're already here. Um, you know, they're, they're in number two and number three and number four job positions uh, in all of these companies. Um, and we can already start to see those folks and see how they're getting groomed to eventually be leaders three, four, five years down the road. Um, 
And then I think the third thing is, you know, we're really building a brand. Um, people want to come work at Dura. It's, it's a great place to be. Um, they like that it's a situation where we have the upside of a startup, but the, uh, the downside risk is limited, um, cause we have revenue and we have profits, right? Um, all that is pretty exciting. So we're starting to build that brand. We're building that following where people are telling their friends, like, Hey, this is a great place to work. Um, and so that'll continue to pay off, especially as we continue scaling in the future. So those out there who are thinking about building a similar uh, permanent capital or small acquisition fund, what sorts of things do you think they should be doing to start to build that foundation for themselves and their scale? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think the the number one thing is to be really mindful about exactly what you're what you want your model to look like. Um, so, you know, I had a conversation on Twitter with, with a guy who wants to do it for kind of Main Street type businesses. And, you know, the feedback there was to be to, to make sure you're really thinking about customizing the model that you're going to use internally to the market of the types of businesses that you're going to have. And the challenge there is, you know, if you're you're not mindful about that, by default, pretty much just everybody employs the Berkshire Hathaway model. And like that doesn't that doesn't work for everything. Um, so be very mindful about that. Think about what types of things your businesses need. Think about what sort of um, ways they can leverage each other. Think about what sort of economies of scale you can build. Um, all those things together, you know, flow down to what types of businesses they are, right? If you're going to build a, a hold co or a, 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 a company that specializes in public infrastructure, um, you know, the things those businesses need are totally different than what small software businesses need. Uh, and even more particular, what small software companies and products need are totally different than what medium-sized ones need. Um, we're very intentional at this point and not getting into 10 or 15 or $20 million acquisitions just because we think that's a different set of problems that we don't know about yet. And, and we're going to stay in the niche that we've carved out and where our model is optimized for. So then since you run more of the Holdco structure, um, what have you found to be some pros and cons to that structure compared to that of uh, like an independent sponsor where you raise deal by deal or out of a fund? Uh, so hold co options that are definitely advantageous. Um, you know, one of the things we did, which I think is is proven to be very attractive to people, um, is hold co's offer better tax advantages uh, in the U.S. Uh, compared to other models. Um, there's opportunity zones and we're an opportunity zone company within a, and basically that works because we have a captive fund, uh, that, you know, gives people tax-free gains, uh, who invested in our last round, assuming a 10 year hold period and assuming we do the things that we're supposed to in terms of meeting the criteria, um, you know, hold codes and, and whatnot offer you also at the very least, even if you're not an opportunity zone company, you can, um, get QSBS, which is qualified small business stock, which gives you slightly, you know, less tax advantages in terms of federal income tax, but is still good. Um, so, you know, those are definitely the pros of being, you know, a hold co. Um, the other thing that's awesome about being a hold co or an operating company versus a fund is uh, you don't have the same kind of time pressure that a fund does. Um, so, you know, a fund has a deployment period that they have to get the money out and they just got to pay whatever the prices are at that time or they get to give the money back to investors. For us, uh, as a whole co, we always have the option to say, hey, like, we're just going to sit here and build up a cash position uh, if we can't find any deals uh, in a, any particular situation. 
Um, so all that's good. Um, you know, there's downsides of being a hold co. I mean, the, um, there's the, there's, uh, obviously C Corp taxes that happen and, and a little bit more kind of complexity that people don't necessarily understand that versus a fund model or a deal by deal model. Um, if you go to a family office or you go to a high net worth individual, they've all done funds. So they understand how those work. Um, if you're a hold co model you know, or a permanent capital model, they're harder for people oftentimes to get their heads around. Uh, and so, you know, the, the lesson I think learned there is if you're going to go out to raise money for this sort of stuff, uh, being a, an investment type that people understand. And that's one of the mistakes we made early was being too complex and too fancy. You got to be simple so somebody can understand and is familiar with the structure. And then all they have to worry about is, are you the right people? And is this the right opportunity to execute on that? But, uh, innovating on structure and getting super creative on that, like it's, it makes it hard to raise. Yeah. So how did you raise money for Dura software then? So for, for us, you know, you just run it like a normal sales process, right? You try to find uh, a compelling value proposition for investors. Uh, and then you go out and you um, do the usual kind of play, right? Which is try to find a lead or a lead and a first follower. And then, and then at, at that point, once the terms are set and you have validation around that, then other people come in. So for us, kind of the key things to do were number one, that, right? Like get, get, get a first believer willing to put some skin in the game, uh, leverage that hopefully into other believers. And then it's easy to, to go past after that. Um, and just, just to give you an example of, of our path, we raised pretty much the whole round in about three weeks. Um, we ended up raising, uh, $10 million over last summer. Uh, and we did that using kind of that strategy. And then the second thing we did, um, which is really compelling, uh, is uh, we had proof points. At that point, when we were going out to fundraise, we had found the first handful of deals that we wanted to do. Uh, and we had the one um, that we already had that we had done with our own money. And then we had the three more deals that we had um, ready to sign and ready to close on. Um, and when you walk into an investor's office and you say, Hey, I've got these other believers. I've got a structure that's simple that you understand. It's tax advantaged. Uh, and oh, by the way, like I know how I'm going to deploy your money and here's the pro forma for it. And here's the historical financials and here's the LOI signed. Um, that basically checks all people's buckets, right? The boxes get checked, right? There's validation. Uh, people know that you're, uh, you've got a plan to deploy the money. So you have validation around that. Uh, and then, you know, Basically, it becomes relatively straightforward. Oh, and it's tax advantage. And it's like, okay, like check all the boxes. You know, where do I send my check? Um, so in, in the end, like you come up with a compelling value proposition and then you execute on it. And uh, that was our strategy. What's something that you believe about software companies or investing in them that you think few other people do or recognize? Yeah, I, I mean, look, my if you do like a personality test on me, I'm a natural contrarian. Uh, so <laughs> probably most everything I believe is a contrary in view. <laughs> um, but look, I think, uh, you know, you go look in the press. Here's, here's a good one. I think you go look in the press about, um, about what is, uh, sexy and cool and everybody wants to bet on the next Uber or Salesforce or rocket ship or whatever. And, you know, I subscribe to a lot of, you know, Silicon Valley Twitter and it's all sexy boom time and stuff like that. And I, I think there's a growing, there's a growing uh, sub movement and of small people who think that boring is really sexy. 
Um, and, you know, I think there's a, a wonderful place in the world for nice software businesses that never make it in the press, that never gets in the front of, you know, TechCrunch, um, that are sexy as all heck. Like, I'll, I'll take that kind of stuff all the time. Uh, and I think I think there's a small pe- set of people out there that are a minority that find that stuff really cool. And I think it's great. If you could teach a class in college about anything you wanted, what would you teach? So I would totally teach an entrepreneurship class, but I would do it totally different than the way the schools teach it. Right. So kind of to illustrate my different philosophy about the way entrepreneurship should work is I think that most colleges teach entrepreneurship like it's playing Bach. Like here are the rules. You play it Allegro and you do it this way. Here's the recipe and you play it exactly this and this is how it's perfect. When in reality, entrepreneurship is much more like jazz, which is like, well, here's kind of the direction we're going, like figure it out and get there. And, you know, the unfortunate reality is you go look at like some of the stuff that comes out of MIT or some of these things that are very formulaic, like go interview five customers, then go do this, then go do this. And and like entrepreneurship just does not work that way at all. Um, but everybody wants to translate that kind of approach into how they teach entrepreneurship classes. And the way I would actually run an entrepreneurship class is totally different than that. Uh, I would run it much more like a venture capital playground um, where I would do things like just sit at the front of the room and tell everybody, congratulations, I'm an investor. Uh, I will invest up to $500 in each of your businesses. Um, and then here's the deal. At the end of the six weeks or the nine week period, I want $1,500 back. Anything above that you can keep, right? And so, like, um, what that does is it suddenly makes uh, makes teaching entrepreneurship become a practical exercise and not a uh, a formulaic exercise. Because by teaching people that entrepreneurship is formulaic, like, you end up with a bunch of people who end up going to get jobs because they think entrepreneurship just doesn't work. Um, and it's a different mindset. It's a different mentality. And I would create an entrepreneurship class that actually – had people totally uh, in a playground that gave them a safe space to fail. So then they can work on their second and third ideas that would hopefully be better than that first one, which I guarantee everybody's first ideas are always terrible. I I would love that class. That'd be a lot of fun. It's awesome. By the way, every time I get invited to go talk to an entrepreneurship class, I'm like, here's how they should redo your whole class. And then I don't get invited back again. What's something that you used to believe strongly early in your career or when you were younger um, that you have since changed your mind on? I think the biggest evolution that I can point to is about eight years ago, we started, and I started with a couple partners, um, we started a coding bootcamp here. Uh, It's called CodeUp, recently just expanded from San Antonio to add a second office in Dallas. Um, very successful, run by one of my partners who's a CEO now. And I think early on in that process, I was very negative about people going to college um, and doing that. And I think the, the transformation I've made is, whereas before I thought college as a concept was terrible, um, I think the transformation I've made now is that I think everybody, I think college is horribly implemented. Uh, and I think we need to have something better than college, but I don't think there's a better choice than what college provides as an opportunity to invest in yourself, uh, to be more successful in life and be more educated. Um, so I think that's kind of the evolutionary change that I've made. If people ask, and my kids are going to go to college, if people ask me, I say, you should go to college. Like, and go to the best one you can get into with the best reputation. 
Um, and because I think college in many regards is too cheap and also too expensive, right? Your University of Phoenix degree is a total ripoff. Uh, but if you go to Trinity University here or, or, or Reed where you are or Brown on the East Coast, like those are a bargain. Um, so anyway, I would say that's the big evolution is just how I think about college um, and really um, how my mind has changed on that. I love that answer. Um, you know, so you don't think there's a, a positive option or a better way to implement college in your opinion? Oh, I think there's tons of changes I would make if I went to college. What have you got? Just remember what happened with the entrepreneurship class talk and think about the whole school. Well, I mean, I think, uh, I think fundamentally the number one thing I would change about college is I think they should all have to publish, uh, outcomes. Um, so one thing that has quietly happened in the past five to eight years is the Department of Education tried to actually make colleges uh, track and publish their outcomes and make that public. Uh, all of the colleges went in and fought that, saying it would stop them from being able to do their job. Uh, I, I think that would be the very first thing that I would totally change. And, and we've, you know, with Coda, our business, we've actually put our money where our mouth is. We, we publish results for everybody. Um, we're part of a, a reporting a reporting group where we submit all that and it gets it gets reviewed. Um, and then the last thing we do is if you don't get a job after leaving the coding boot camp, we give you back all your money. So like we I'm, I'm practicing what I preach here. So um, anyway, number one, colleges should uh, publicize and track and produce statistics on outcomes, period. And they should do it by major. They should do it by year. All that should totally be done. Um, I think that would then translate into all of these ancillary things that get, would get changed because if those colleges either had to give you back your money if you didn't get outcomes or that they didn't produce for you or that they had to have sunlight on what they produce as outcomes for people, uh, you would totally see a scenario where everything about college would start to change, right? The 10-year the system would start to be recognized for what it is, kind of a stupid idea. You would stop having these really crazy faculty um, you know, overheads that get produced, yet the career placement offices are almost always underfunded. Uh, you would start to see the curriculum get changed to be better in terms of outcomes. Um, all of that stuff would, would cascade back down to making college and the whole experience better. Heck, you might even actually go to classes for more than six months a year. I love that answer. What's the best business you've ever seen? Yeah, so the business I talk about, which I'd really like to, to tell you about, is um, called Bucky's here in San Antonio. It's in, it's in Texas as well. Um, and I, assuming you've never heard of it, what I think is cool about Bucky's is they've taken the convenience store model and really found, you know, a blue ocean in what was like a red ocean market for sure. And they've created these almost travel stops that people love to go to. They're packed every time I go into one. So there's one like here halfway between San Antonio and Houston. And like people love to go to Bucky's, right? It's almost like what Cirque du Soleil is for, for circus or what, um, what Southwest Airlines is for, you know, an airline, right? They just found this niche and totally, totally exploited that in a great way. And, and they're cleaning up. They're making huge amounts of money. Uh, they've got a whole branding thing going on that's really neat around this like beaver thing called Bucky. Uh, all this, you see people with Bucky's merchandise on. Like, who would ever thought you would see like a, a Bucky's branded or a convenience store branded T-shirt uh, as part of a business? And and I think that's just it's just amazing what's going on with those guys. Thank you very much for coming on the show. This is one of my favorite episodes so far. I really appreciate having you on. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. 
For more information, including show notes, transcripts, and other links, please visit alexbridgman.com.